I'm Pastor Mike Winger, and this is Bible Thinker, the program dedicated to thinking biblically about everything. Man, we've covered so many topics um, throughout this, and we're just going to continue doing that, taking things topically, um, as well as going verse by verse, kind of doing a combination of those two different things. But here we are. I'm just going to back up a little bit into verse 15 of 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 15. It says, <clears throat> But sanctify the Lord God in your hearts, and always be ready to give a defense to everyone who asks you a reason for the hope that is in you, with meekness and fear. And that is gold. I mean, this is like, this is, is the Christian, not just the apologist, but the Christian's blueprint for be ready sanctify god as the lord man I'm, I'm i'm obedient to him only above all else i also want to have a reason for the hope that is in me i may not answer every question but i've got reason for the hope that's in me you know and also to have meekness and fear so i don't become that arrogant um know-it-all christian now it's fine if you know it all maybe you're just one of those jeopardy winners you know who just happens to know just about everything but it's the arrogance that goes that's you don't want to couple with it that's the thing Well, verse 16 then moves forward and says this, having a good conscience that when they defame you as evildoers, those who revile your good conduct in Christ may be ashamed. Now this phrase, a good conscience, I think is really neat and completely misunderstood most of the time. Because let's be honest, you read, oh, I have a good conscience. And you're like, I don't even know what that means. You know, you have to stop and think and go, well, what is a good conscience anyways? And is a good conscience really enough for a person to have? I have a good conscience. So even if others don't like me or whatever, my conscience is clear. I have a good conscience. What does that mean? Does it mean as long as I don't feel guilty, everything's probably fine? Something sounds a little bit off about that, right? But that is the way the world treats it. But we have to remember this. Guilt is not a feeling. Guilt is an actual condition. For instance, if you go to the doctor and you say, doctor, how am I doing? They say, well, you have cancer. It's uh, it's this stage and it's this far advanced. And all of a sudden, you feel like you have cancer. Because you do. But now you know about it. So you, you have this awareness and that creates a feeling. So there's a certain feeling of having cancer. It's It's not a good one. Just like the feeling of guilt is not a good one. But yet the actual condition of having cancer existed before you felt like you did. And if the doctor said, you know, even though you've already had cancer and, you know, now you feel like you do, what I want to do is I just want you to focus on not feeling like you have cancer anymore. I want your attention to be in cleansing your mind of the feelings of cancer because if you cannot feel like you have it, then it will be gone. This would be a horrible doctor. A horrible physician. In fact, he wants you to feel like you have it so that you'll feel motivated to do something about it. It's unpleasant, but it's a necessary unpleasantness inside of my heart or mind. And so when the world tells people, oh, you just have to forgive yourself. As if I can forgive me for what I've done to others. Like what if I just walk up to my wife and push her down the stairs And she's crying on the bottom of the stairs. And she's like, how could you? And I go, that's okay. I forgive myself. It's just preposterous. I don't have the right to forgive me. Why am I forgiving myself? Because I'm trying to get rid of the feelings of guilt. But what we need to do is get rid of the condition of guilt. And having a good conscience means being cleared of the condition of guilt. And that should be enough. 
You know, that should be pretty good. I'm good. I, I'm not guilty. I'm actually not guilty. There's two ways to not be guilty. One is to not fail in the first place. Well, I'm not guilty. Why? Because I didn't rob the bank. I didn't do that. I'm not guilty. Another is to simply be forgiven by the one who has the ability to forgive you. And that, as a Christian, we get to experience both of these. Everybody experiences the first one in some areas of life. But certainly, we have guilt. And so, we have Christ to forgive us. So, what we need is to have what a good conscience. A good conscience, which means to be truly cleansed of the condition of guilt so that we, we then can say, I'm walking uprightly. I have either been forgiven or I'm just doing the right thing in, this, in these different areas. So having a good conscience is when you know your actions are clean before God. This is absolutely huge because sometimes when we're encountering, encountering the world, this is all we've got. All we've got is the fact that I know I'm doing the right thing. Even if the world says, no, you're not, you're this and you're that and you're this and you're that. And they're accusing. I met with our our high school leadership this morning. We were talking about some of the things we've been called by people we work with or people that we we, we live with or people we, uh, we connect with or socialize with who are not believers who respond to us being believers. And I asked, well, what are some of the names you've been called? And one of the names was Goody Two Shoes, right? And some of these names, you may have been called these before. Preacher Boy godly girl. Oh, it's the godly girl over there. The first people to ever call me pastor were non-Christians who were mocking me <laughs> before I was ever a pastor. And I just, and the funny thing is we took all these insults and put them together and said, you know, what's funny about all these, they're all compliments. <laughs> You're just good. <laughs> Thanks. You know, like, I don't know what to say to that, but they're all compliments. And see, when, when, when no one has a thing to say about you, then they can compliment you as though it's an insult. Like that's, that's the best that can come out because you have a good conscience because you really did get to work on time. You really did work your hardest. You really were honest and thoughtful and caring. And someone's just bothered by that because it's convicting them and showing them of the actual condition of guilt that they have. Cause by comparison, they realize I'm not doing those things. And so I'm, and we're not righteous and perfect or something, but we're walking in obedience to Jesus. And so in this condition, we're not guilty. Now this actually helps when you're in the book of Psalms. How many of you read the book of Psalms and in some condition, um, some situation, David's like, I'm, my hands are clean. I am innocent. And you're like, wait a minute. You say you're innocent over here in this Psalm, but over here in this Psalm, you're like, oh, I'm guilty of bloodshed and I deserve to die. What do you mean? Well, he meant in this situation, he was innocent. And in this situation, he was guilty of bloodshed and deserved to die. So I'm, when I go, hey, my conscience is good. I'm clean. I don't mean I've always lived perfectly. I mean, in this encounter in life, in this scenario, I did the right thing the right way. And I don't have anything to feel bad about. I have a good conscience. So it doesn't mean I'm perfect and righteous and holy, but I handled that thing the right way, the godly way. So in that area, just like in those Psalms, in that particular issue, I'm innocent. Well, I want to have a good conscience because oftentimes, again, it is all that you have to say, I did the right thing. So let's read that with that in context. Verse 16 again. Having a good conscience that when, not if, when they defame you as evildoers, they, they take your fame away by, you know, try to um, take your face, taking, you know, losing face or, uh, or saying bad things about you as, in, as though you're an evildoer. <clears throat> those who revile your good conduct in Christ may be ashamed. And that's what they're doing. They're actually reviling my good conduct. 
my good conduct in Christ. And they may eventually be ashamed because sometimes that's all I've got is just my clear conscience because I did the right thing. Christians need this so badly today because in all honesty, the strongest attack on Christians, at least in, in my community where I live and where you live right here, is peer pressure. I mean, it's pathetic that this is, <laughs> that this is actually the thing. But the strongest attack is peer pressure <clears throat> to be ashamed of biblical truth, to be ashamed of what's right and what's wrong, to be ashamed of Jesus or the Bible or God being the only way or some, these types of things. Now, I'm not saying we're all succumbing to it, but I think that that is the strongest attack that's coming our way. There's always a possibility you'll get sued. There's a possibility someone would attack you for your faith. But more likely, you'll be ridiculed. More likely, you'll be insulted. More likely, someone will distance themselves from you and say bad things about you behind your back because they're bothered by your Christian values. That's, that's always a possibility. <clears throat> so, Christians need moral fortitude. That's what we need, moral fortitude. And that's what this good conscience thing is talking about. Now, what we do not need is moral attitude. Moral attitude is I'm so right and you're all so wrong. I'm so smart and you're so dumb. Da, 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 da. You know, this, this kind of self-righteous. But we do need to have a righteous attitude, just not self-righteous. Self-righteousness never is anyways. <laughs> if it's self, it's not righteous, you know. Um, but we do need fortitude. Now, let me read to you Webster's definition of fortitude. I love this. Strength of mind that enables a person to encounter danger or bear pain or adversity with courage. That's this good conscience. That's what that is. To bear this with courage. Okay, that's how it's going to be. But Lord, I'm going to serve you. I'm going to press on and I'm going to do the right thing. I can think of uh, The Pilgrim's Progress. Have any of you ever read The Pilgrim's Progress? Or perhaps seen the B-movie version, which I actually really like the B-movie. B as in budget. It's a low budget movie. But I really loved it. I showed it to the kids one year. <clears throat> they really loved it too. <laughs> but I, think, I thought it was like so good. You know, the, the pictures that are there. But this, this character whose name is Christian, once he gets serious, he begins to just sort of press forward, press forward. And there's times where he gets opposition and he's like, oh, and he just decides to press on, press on, you know. And that's a big deal. Not that he never fails or something, but, but that moral fortitude. I'm just going to keep doing the right thing because it's the right thing. Not because it's the thing people agree is right. So I just do it because it's right in God's eyes. We ultimately get a choice in life between pleasing God or pleasing man. I can choose between man's approval and God's approval. But like, like the Bible says, woe are you when all men speak well of you. If everybody loves you and everybody thinks you're fantastic, then you're probably making compromises so that they'll think that. Because the world will simply not appreciate the godly Christian in a lot of ways. They'll love them, but I mean, even like, look at an example here, and I'm certainly not trying to pick a fight, but inevitably. Mother Teresa, <laughs> I'll give an example. Here's someone who did incredible charity work. You know, she was like the fundraiser of the Catholic Church for a while, you know, and she did all this incredible charity work. And she, she very, very kind lady, very gentle, very generous, very giving. She, she took a vow of poverty like all nuns do. And, um, and so she did all this great stuff. But when she was asked, <clears throat> you're wondering, why was she so well received? I mean, aren't there other people that are doing the same type of thing, but maybe just not as well funded? Um, well, yeah. So why was she so well received? Well, in one respect, it's because of her decision to compromise the gospel. Mother Teresa was asked, what do you say when you meet a Mormon or a Muslim or a Hindu? And she goes, well, I just ask them to be a better Mormon, a better Muslim, and a better Hindu. And it was like, oh, 
That's why you get along with everybody. You pretend they're all right. You're basically you're, you're now she may not have been a relativist, but that act is from a relativist worldview. Where it's like, oh, it's all the same. It's all it's all the same. But it's, I can't all be the same. It's like you meet three people and they're all heading different directions to get to the same location. I'm going to go jump off that cliff. I'm going to go climb that mountain and I'm going to go straight to that town right there that's the one I'm looking for. <laughs> and you go, "Um, okay, well jump way off the cliff. Climb way up the mountain and go straight to the town." I'm not really helping them, but they they leave thinking I'm nice. Bye, thank you. And and that's the decision that was made. So I need this moral fortitude to decide I will take God's approval over man's. Now I don't want to provoke man. That's not my desire. And if you like confrontation, you're weird. You know, if you enjoy that sort of thing. But a Christian should be willing to withstand the confrontation because it's something that is expected. All those who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. But we are to do it with gentleness. And that's really important because so often as Christians, we come to a point where we go, you know what? I'm not worried about what the world thinks of me anymore. But then we just sort of disregard the world like we don't care what they think of Christ. I'm not worried about what you think of me, but I do care what you think of Christ. And so for that, I want to offer gentleness so that you have nothing to say against me because I've learned this the hard way and maybe you have too. I could preach truth to somebody. I could share Christ with them. I could share evidence for the Bible and all this stuff. But in the middle of all that, at one point, I acted rude or I scoffed or mocked. And that's the one thing they hold on to for the rest of the time. And they ignore everything else I said and they take the one thing where I was like, I shouldn't have said it that way. I failed in that. And that's the thing they use to disqualify everything else I've said. Have you ever had that happen to you? I've certainly, I've certainly done that. And I'm like, man, I shouldn't have said that. What I did was I basically gave them blinders for everything else I said through that one unnecessary offense that I brought. And so we want to be gentle. We want to have a graciousness where I'm not worried about what you think in that sense. But, so I'm not pandering to you. But I'm also being careful to represent the character of Christ still in the way I share with others. There's that balance that's there. I think uh, an example of it is in 2 Timothy. <clears throat> so if you would, please turn to 2 Timothy. Keep your place there in 1 Peter. Turn to 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 24. <clears throat> this passage is so classically important for those of us who are sharing our faith or even just in the way we interact with Christians. Let's say that you're debating politics with a Christian, you know, or with a non-Christian. You're talking about abortion or you're talking about homosexuality or you're talking about some controversial issue where people immediately get hot-headed. Here's how we should be. 2 Timothy 2, 24 through 26. And a servant of the Lord must not quarrel but be gentle to all, able to teach, patient. So the first thing I do is I don't quarrel. The moment where the discussion, the dialogue, the the disagreement even, goes into quarrel, where it's like a fight with words, that's when you stop. I'm done. I don't have anything else to prove. I'm not going to quarrel with you. So... On YouTube, I do this with my comments section. You know, I'll be checking the comments and I'll see something that I think is worth responding to. And I go, da, da, da. And they're like, oh, well, you're just da, 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 da. And I go, I go, hey, I appreciate you, you know, giving me a comment. Can we talk rationally about this and, and just have some mutual respect? And then you're like, well, you're, I'm not, I have no reason to respect you, you stupid. Da, 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 da. And I go, no response. I'm like, I'm done. I don't need to respond to that. I'm not offended or upset. I just realize the servant of the Lord must not quarrel. So I'm just not going to engage on that level. And as a Christian, it's fine just to abstain. I don't need to prove anything here. I'm just going to not quarrel to not get myself involved in that. And remember what Proverbs says about answering a fool according to their folly. That there's, there's times where it's not wise. Um, 
So we're to be gentle to all. Gentle to all. We're all gentle to some people, but we're called to be gentle to all people. You know how that is? There's some people in our, on our list who are, oh, I'm super gentle with this person. But then there's certain others who I'm not gentle at all with. And you know who this is because you're like, you'll be watching kids play. And they'll be the kid who he's, he or she is like more popular. And people are, hey, you, you want to do this? You want to do that? And then up comes like the kid that's not as popular. And he comes to play and they're like, oh, man, you want to play? And they're not gentle to him at all. But when a Christian shows up and they show that gentleness to all, the one who's not used to it will respond. They'll be like, wow, what, well, that's a kindness I'm not used to getting. That's, that's neat. There's something that's there. So even when we're disagreeing, be gentle to all, able to teach. That means not just preach, but actually teach as well, which is, has to do with explaining things. Uh, this doesn't mean we're all called to teach, be teachers, but we're called to be able to explain at least the basics of what we believe. Like if I said, who's Jesus? And you were like, well, my pastor can answer that. Then I go, well, maybe you should give it a little bit more thought and prepare yourself so that you could actually tell a non-believer. If you can't share the gospel with somebody, it's not because you're incapable. It's because you just haven't prepared yourself for that. So I would recommend read some tracts, read through the gospel, read John, read Romans, and just start to try to go, hmm, how would I summarize the gospel? Go with another Christian and say, hey, let me summarize the gospel to you and you tell me what you think of what I, not, don't tell me about stylistically you should have said like this more, but rather just, did I, is that the gospel or did I, am I missing something? Because um, at first you just get overwhelmed, I think, when you're trying to share. Um, so able to teach patience, so patience is required, in humility, correcting those who are in opposition. Humility going with correction is so key. Not fake humility. Genuine humility where I go, okay, I'm going to correct them. Lord, help me check my own heart. Help me do this in the right attitude. Help me do this in the right way. Help me not assume that I know more than I do. And help me try to, in humility, correct them. As opposed to, aha, well, now I know more. And I can go, guess what? But in humility. Why? If God perhaps will grant them repentance so that they may know the truth and that they may come to their senses and escape the snare of the devil, having been taken captive by him to do his will. So God is working in them. And this is one of the reasons why I want a clear conscience. First, then I'll know job's done. Well done job. Because at the end of the story, whether they accepted or rejected, whether they embraced Christ or hated me or whatever, I know that I did the right thing. But also, because even if they reject... There's a future time coming where they may accept. And you got to be part of that story. You got to be part of that testimony. And that is really exciting. Remember Saul? In Acts chapter 9 verse 5, and you don't have to turn there, but Jesus tells Saul, it's hard to kick against the goads, isn't it? And it's the most random thing. It's like, you know, there's this vision of Christ. Saul, the persecutor of the church, sees Jesus. And he's like, who are you? And he's like, I'm Jesus, the one you were persecuting. And then he tells him, it's hard to kick against the goads. And now those of us who are, live in Southern California are like, what is a goad? What is this? But actually, in their community, it was well understood. The goad was a sharpened stick, a stick with a point on the end of it. And it would be used to poke the animals to keep them moving. That whack, whack, poke. But the problem is, if an animal didn't want to go with the goad, go the direction the goad was telling them. This is where we get the phrase goading. Stop goading me. They're trying to get you to do something you don't want to do and the animal picked up its leg and kicked against the goad, it could actually stab itself in the leg. It could actually stab its leg in, you know, not just a poke, but an actual, like, wound. And so Jesus is like, it's hard to kick against the goads. What do you mean? What, what goads? What's goading me? 
Well, remember Stephen? Paul was there, Saul. He was there when Stephen was murdered and he was consenting to his death. He traveled from Christian to Christian trying to get them to deny Christ. And that whole time they're doing what? They're witnessing to him. And yet he is probably one of the most bold-faced anti-Christian guys they've ever seen. And yet he ends up getting saved. And Jesus refers to those events as the goads. So even if you're there witnessing and they reject you and they despise and they're... Maybe they're just getting goaded. Maybe you're successfully goading, even though they did not successfully come to Christ, but you're being a success. And you're just part of that process to lead them closer to Christ. My goal is not always to get someone saved in that conversation, but often to just get them just even one little step closer to Jesus. To get them one tiny little bit closer to considering or looking at Christ. And, um, and those are the goads. And those are the goads. So we get to be God's goads sometimes. <laughs> So that's nice. And, but if you are his goad, don't be surprised if somebody kicks against you. So just, you want to have a clear conscience so that one day when Christ returns, they'll be ashamed and you'll be cleared. And he'll clear it up back th- at that point. Verse 17, for it is better if it is the will of God to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh but made alive by the Spirit. Now, Peter's beginning to get into some really um, complicated things. It's, it's just starting. The ball's like, the snowball is getting bigger and bigger. You'll see real soon here where it goes next. But <clears throat> here we see the destruction of prosperity preaching, basically. In many passages of the New Testament, we get this. Because prosperity preaching generally grabs Old Testament promises to Israel about their financial and physical prosperity if they would obey the law, about the covenant of the law, and then they apply it to New Testament Christians, ignoring the requirements of it, ignoring the actual audience of it, but then they ignore the New Testament teachings on things like this. It's better, if it's the will of God, to suffer for doing good. Wait, does that not mean that sometimes God's will is for me to suffer? Yeah. Now, not just to suffer as though the end was suffering, but rather the suffering is part of the means to the end, and that's what God's will is going for, is this good result in the end. But it's better if it's God's will to suffer for doing good rather than, of course, for doing evil. So prosperity preaching is way off, but it's not that prosperity preaching is completely wrong. I don't want to overstep. There are times of God's prosperity. The thing is, as a New Testament believer, I go, I just can't predict these things. That's the thing. I just can't make promises that if you, if you tithe, then you'll have more money at the end of the month than, than if you didn't tithe. Like, I don't know if that's going to happen. And to be honest, if that's got to be your motive for tithing, you're just a materialist and you're just tithing for your own physical wealth anyways. <laughs> so just keep your money. You know? You're just giving it for selfish reasons. You, you think it's a stock investment. <laughs> it's like you're just trusting the Lord. Just tithe and let, let God take care of your stuff. You know, that's my opinion. But there are times where people tithe and God brings a windfall just to show them his provision and his blessings. There's other times where people go, yeah, I couldn't buy that thing because I did this. But you know what? I'm investing in God's kingdom and that's worth it. And that's fine. So maybe you won't own your jet if you decide to tithe. But the problem with prosperity preaching is really in this. It's the timing. It's the timing. Prosperity preaching focuses on the wrong kingdom. They focus on this world instead of that which is to come. They focus on the temporary instead of the eternal. And they focus on the wrong self, the outer self versus the inner self. See, because as our outer self perishes, as it says in 2 Corinthians, our inner self is being renewed day by day. And so the suffering is resulting in a renewal of my inner 
spiritual self. So I am in the middle of God's prosperity for my life, but it's eternal prosperity and it's the inner person, even sometimes at the expense of physical wealth and, and, and physical um, health. So it's better if it's the will of God to suffer for doing good rather than for doing evil. Of course, no Christian can claim, oh God, I'm, I'm suffering in jail after robbing that liquor store for Christ. Yeah, no. But I, I obviously, I just, just own up to it. You know, stop fighting. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I brought this on myself. But if it's not you, it may be God's will to allow you to suffer even though you did the right thing. Because he's bringing his glory out of it. And the example we're given is Christ. He suffered once to bring us salvation. Christ also suffered once for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive by the Spirit. So Jesus' suffering was how many times? Once. Once for sins. Once for sins. The one moment of death for all the plural sins of mankind. That is the deal. That is the glory of the crucifixion. He died for all. Once for all. And Hebrews makes a big deal about the once. One, 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 one. Only one offering. Only one time. Only one Savior. Only one way. Only one cross. Only one moment where the world was judged by through Christ for our sins. But if God used Jesus' suffering for such glory as to bring the world salvation, don't you think he can use yours? I mean, really. If he used Christ's suffering, can't he use yours? But here's the problem. Sometimes we go, how? I'm Okay, cool, Lord, I'm down. You're going to use my suffering for your glory. But how? Exactly how? And so we start to guess, right? And so some of the, the possibilities, the potentials are Romans 8, 29, that he's conforming our character to Christ likeness. So maybe the suffering is just to bring patience and, and, and long suffering into my life so I can be more like Christ. Maybe, like 2 Corinthians, he's going to comfort me so that I might bring comfort to others through my suffering, maybe. Or maybe, and this is our favorite, there's some sort of strange domino series of events that are going to take place because of what I'm suffering that are going to result in some awesome thing that I'll see in the future. And that's where we like to stand and do the guessing game, right? <laughs> where we're like, hmm. And some, some people think that the spiritual Christian can look at your suffering and figure out what's causing it. Like what it's going to, and I've been around people who did this and I sort of unintentionally, now they're great people, don't get me wrong, but in this area they were doing this and I unintentionally sort of learned that too. So in my own life, I'd be like, man, I ran out of gas. Lord, maybe, maybe is there a reason? You know, like maybe like when I go to the gas station and I'm like filling up the little thing and I'm, and I'm going to witness to the guy, you know, or, or maybe like on the way back, I'm filling up the thing and someone's going to see the bumper sticker on my car. And then they're like going to get ministered to. And I won't even know them, but that's what the Lord did. And I'm trying to like brainstorm on how. And then bad, like really bad stuff happens. Somebody dies. Some horrible thing happens. And you're like, but I think that was to do this. But here's what I've learned. Maybe I'm just not spiritual, but I'm always wrong. <laughs> like my guess for what God's doing is almost always wrong. I'm like, well, this happened, but you know, I think it's so that this can happen. And it, guaranteed, I'm wrong. Here's the lesson I've learned personally. I think that the spiritual person isn't the one that's able to figure out what God's doing. Hey, if that's you and you really can discern what the Lord's, then that's awesome. Like that's exciting. That's really cool. Totally not me. I got no skills. But I think the truly spiritual person is the one who just chooses to trust God because of his promises, regardless of whether they know what God is doing. Because if you have to know what God's doing before you trust him, you don't. 
you don't. It's like if I turn to my wife and, I'm, and she's like, why are you going that way home? And I go, honey, will you just trust me? And she goes, but why? Why are you going this way home? Well, just trust me. I'll trust you when you explain why. And I'll go, no, if I explain why, you won't even be able to trust me. Because <laughs> you'll know. <laughs> so you're just trusting your, your, your own understanding at that point. And so I, I think that the spiritual person chooses to trust God in whatever the circumstance of life they're going through. Now, God has good credentials to be trusted. Okay. <laughs> so, I mean, the creator and the maker and the, and the one who's promised us such glorious things. He's proven himself through Christ. He's, he's given us all the reasons to trust. So we have no reason to doubt, no, no real reasons to doubt. Now, don't get me wrong. We have heart reasons, but emotions don't exactly make sense. But I've got heart reasons that cause me to wonder and doubt. But then if anything should be doubted, it should be my heart, not the Lord. So now after having brought up Jesus' sacrifice, Peter's going to give us some details about Jesus that we may not have had if it wasn't for these few verses that come next. There are two really different topics that come up in the next five verses. Each is very interesting. Each one of them is really easily misused and easily misunderstood, but they're gems and really cool passages for the Bible student who's like, I just like to learn this stuff, you know? Because they reveal things to us that we don't normally see in the scriptures. So here we are, verse 19. By whom, by the Spirit, he also, uh, also he went and preached to the spirits in prison who formerly were disobedient when once the divine long-suffering waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared in which a few, that is eight souls, were saved through water. Now, we'll read on to the baptism stuff in a minute. Okay, some people say that the passage we just read refers to universal salvation. They think that Jesus preached to the people, the souls in prison, so like those who, were, who had died and been set apart from God, and that he preached the gospel to them so they could get saved after they died. Some people think that this is a reference to the Nephilim. How many of you are familiar with the name Nephilim? The controversy about angels... Um, making babies with women and then they're producing the Nephilim. Other, and Jesus is, goes and just shows his glory to these, these fallen beings. Um, I'll get into some more details in a minute on that. Um, others think it is an after account of the fact that Jesus' spirit was striving with mankind before the flood, not something Jesus did after the crucifixion. Meaning that the, he went and preached to the spirits in prison is he went previously, while the ark was being built, the spirit of Christ was preaching and now those spirits are in prison. So here's three totally different views of these verses that we just read. Trippy, right? Okay, so we got one that says, okay, it's after Jesus' death, during the three days, he went and preached to these spirits, and they're humans, people's human spirits, and then they had an opportunity to get saved. Others, and there's other, there's like more than three, but these are just three examples. And others say, no, he, he went down there and he preached to these fallen angel beings, and he just proclaimed to them like, this was the plan. This is my glory. I am, I am the one, you know. And others think the, the him going down and preaching didn't happen during the three days. It happened actually during the 120 years when Noah was building the flood. While according to Genesis, God's spirit was striving with mankind, right, to, to see them changed. But they wouldn't listen. So there's three totally different perspectives on this. Let's, let's unpack it just a little bit. Um, there are other verses that we're going to get into. Um, two in particular. One of them is 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 4. 2 Peter 2, 4. And this refers to the, the idea of the Nephilim or these fallen beings. Um, and I want to get into some details because I think we're confused about Nephilim and, and who their parents were. So let me explain. Um, 2 Peter 2, 4 says, For if God did not spare the angels who sinned, 
but cast them down to hell and delivered them into chains of darkness to be reserved for judgment. Then he draws the illustration out. But the point is, he's saying there were these angels who sinned that were cast down to hell and delivered into chains of darkness to be reserved for judgment. Whichever these angels are, they are trapped, they are bound, and they are not free to roam the earth or affect or impact anything. So this wouldn't be all of the fallen angels, because we know they're not all bound like that. This would be a certain group amongst them. In fact, the word used, they're cast down to hell, is actually Tartarus. Tartarus. It's the only time that word is used in the New, in the New Testament. And that word Tartarus is possibly a compartment within Hades, within you know the abode of the dead, that's like, in, in, this is how the, Greek, the Greeks saw Tartarus, and this might be why the word was used, why it was imported. It was like, here's, here's the underworld in Greek belief, and then there's this pit within the underworld. So in the Christian worldview, this would be, okay, here's where the spirits of the, of the dead go, the unsaved dead, and then there's a compartment or, a, or holding chamber. Imagine you've got like um, uh, solitary confinement within a prison, you know, and that's what Tartarus would be like, chains of darkness down there. In Luke 8, we read about these demons that Jesus runs into. And these demons are saying, Jesus, don't cast us into the abusas, which is the abyss. Don't cast us into the abyss before the time. And this might also be a, same, a reference to the same location, using a different word. Uh, I say might because I, it's not because I'm, I'm totally clueless. It's just that I don't think that this is an essential doctrine. I think it's really interesting. But I don't think anything hangs on this issue. And I don't think it's totally clear because we have to pull all these scriptures together to try to go okay is this how the puzzle fits so i'm going to give i'm going to hedge my bets a little bit by saying that um now let me pause for a second are there any questions yet (laughs) okay so let me let me just back up a moment and remind us genesis the flood is going to happen and in genesis we read that it says the sons of god came and they saw that the daughters of men were beautiful and so they took wives from the daughters of men, and then they had children, and the children were giants. Okay, that word giants is the word Nephilim. It's just a Hebrew word that means giants. This is where people debate. Are these Nephilim the, the, the crossbreeding between angels and humans? And this is where me, in my perspective, I just go like, well, that's pretty weird, buddy. <laughs> so I'm just telling you this is the debate, right? I don't see how angels could crossbreed with humans. It doesn't make sense. They're spirits. They don't have physical bodies. I don't see how they could do this. But then maybe it's more complicated than that. Perhaps angels possessed humans so that they could breed with women. And that then, the, then, then they had a breeding program to produce. I mean, if you took the largest of people and bred the largest of people over and over again, pretty soon you would have like the Samoans. I mean, you'd have these really big people. <laughs> and you would call them giants. And, um, and giants doesn't mean that they were 50 feet tall. They were just huge people. I mean, with Andre the Giant, that was this, the wrestler was called because he's just this giant guy. So you've got the Nephilim. You've got all this kind of thing going on. Uh, the, the identity of the Nephilim is based on the identity in Genesis 6 of who are these sons of God. And I don't want to get into a big, long thing tonight about it, but the debate is this. Is sons of God angels or is sons of God people who were following God who then were attracted to the daughters of men or the unsaved women? And they interbred and they kind of lost their, their Christian culture, so to speak. You know, it wasn't Christian. It was a godly culture. Does that make sense? Two, two possibilities there. In Job, the term sons of God refers to angels. So then they bring that in. But Job was written by a different author and was at a different time than Genesis. So it gets a little bit muddy and a little bit hard to tell. These other passages do lend credibility to the idea that these were angels. 
that were doing this. Now, what were the Nephilim? Were they some sort of like demigod type? I don't think so. I think we're getting silly here. It just says they were big. <laughs> they, were just, they were big. I don't know that much about them. They weren't like shooting fireballs out of their ears or something. They're just big. Uh, we have big people t- today. And after the flood, there's also Nephilim again. There's big people that are found again. I don't think there were a whole race of people. They were just giant people that were intimidating and they could dominate the world because of their physical strength. There weren't guns. There weren't these types of weapons to even the playing field. So um, pausing. Any questions? All right, now, um, I, I do lean slightly on the side that the sons of God is some sort of angelic representation there, but it's the only way that I can think of how they would uh, have babies with women would be if they possessed humans, and we know that they can possess humans, that we see that in the New Testament. And so then if they had a breeding program so they could take over the earth, what would you want? You'd want the biggest and the strongest. So um, that's a possibility. That's a possibility. I don't know. Maybe it's the other way around. They're just the... They were just godly people who compromised in relationships, which we see that happen a lot too. So Jude, Jude 1, 6, there's only one chapter in Jude, but Jude verse 6, it says, And the angels who did not keep their proper domain, but left their own abode, he has reserved in chains, in everlasting chains, under darkness for the judgment of the great day. So another reference from a different author about these angels that did not keep their proper abode. So they like came down maybe, you know, from where they were supposed to be. And he's reserved them in everlasting chains under darkness for the judgment of the great day. It's possible that these sons of God in Genesis 6 are, are taken and held captive in this low place. Now that means that they're clueless for thousands of years. And that then Jesus going and preaching to them could simply be that. Um, every knee will bow to the, to the name of Jesus. And he simply goes down and preaches. This is me. Show you my glory. But then some would say, well, if that's the case then, um, then how, how is it that Jesus preached to them? Because doesn't preaching mean giving them the gospel? Isn't this an opportunity to be saved? Actually, it's just the word preach as in proclaim. You can proclaim anything. The, the sign twirler is preaching. And it's the word caruso in the Greek. But there's a word for preaching the gospel. That's euangizomai. That's a different word altogether. So they didn't preach the gospel. They just, Jesus rather, he just preached to them. He told them something. So here's what we know. Jesus went to teach these spirits in prison. There are other references in, in the Bible to these fallen angels being put, this certain group of fallen angels being put in chains of darkness. And it does make sense if it refers to Jesus preaching to them. Now, why are we so clueless about the details of this? Because it doesn't really pertain to us. It's about the angelic world. It's not really about humans. It's about that, that stuff that's going on. And let's be honest, we don't know much of what goes on in the angelic world. So that's, that's my perspective on it anyways. And then if you skip a little bit ahead to verse 22, it kind of brings us some perspective on this. First Peter 3.22, two verses later, it says that Jesus has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God, angels and authorities and powers having been made subject to him. So it could be that he went down to preach to them to say, I am, I am the Lord, I am in charge. And then he, then he ascends and he's like, now, he, now they're subject to him. So that seems to make sense in context to me. And before I move on, any other questions? So there's two different subjects that have popped up in this study that are like, what? And one of them is the issue of these angels and Jesus preaches to spirits in prison. It has nothing to do with the gospel. Whatever your interpretation, it doesn't really change anything about what we believe as Christians, but it's interesting and a little confusing. Um, The other one is this issue here in verse 21. There is also an anti-type which now saves us. Notice the, the type here would have been the flood. Talks about how they were saved through water. Um, Now, baptism, not the removal of the filth of the flesh, but the answer of a good conscience toward God through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, 
who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God. And we read that. So baptism saves us. Bam! You have to get baptized or you're not saved. That's how I've heard this verse used many, many times. But I just want to say, slow down, buddy. <laughs> just slow down. Let's look at the passage carefully. What on earth is an antitype? <laughs> what does that even mean? Well, this is a word worth learning and putting in our vocabulary as Christians. There's two words that go together. One is type and one is antitype. And a type is like um, a shadow or a preview of something. And the antitype is like the thing itself. For example, if I'm standing at the corner and you see my shadow being cast across the corner, but I'm behind the wall, the shadow is my type. But the antitype or the, the reality that corresponds to this is me. I'm the thing. There's my shadow and then there's the thing. So an, a type is like a shadow. Antitype is like the actual thing. That's how the word is used. And the type is typically an Old Testament event or person like representing the antitype, which is a New Testament truth usually about Jesus. There is a lot of examples of this. Moses is an example of this. He came as the deliverer for Israel. He delivered them through plagues. He brought them to the Red Sea. He was rejected the first time, accepted the second time. Um, all the stuff that Moses did relating to Christ. Moses is like a picture of Jesus. Jephthah in the book of Judges is a really cool picture of Jesus. The bronze serpent that was lifted up, and if they looked at it, they were saved. That's a picture of Jesus. The rock that Moses struck and water poured out in Exodus and, and Numbers, and you read all these stories, you've got a picture of Jesus because he's the rock that was struck. He was struck with, with death that living water would pour out and we could be saved. So it was just an event that happened in the Old Testament in, uh, in Israel's history, but that taught a lesson about who Jesus was. And so that's a, that's a type, and the anti-type is Jesus. One of my favorites is Abraham offering Isaac in Genesis 22. Abraham offers his son. His son goes up there. He's going to slay his one and only begotten son on the same mountain where Jesus was crucified. Yeah, and then God spares him, and it was all just to draw a picture of Jesus. Genesis 22 is so beautiful. I love Love, love reading that passage and studying all the symbolism of Christ. Uh, it, it's detailed, detailed symbolism. So that's a type and an anti-type. So now let's apply it to, the, to this baptism and flood thing. The type, the Old Testament shadow that will teach us about our New Testament reality is the flood. The type is the flood. Now, it rained for 40 days. It rained for 40 days, but the flood was not 40 days. The rain was for 40 days. The flood was for a year. It was a serious flood, and the people were saved through water. Notice they were not saved by water. Water was what was threatening them. <laughs> they were not saved by the water. They were saved by the boat, but they were saved through the water, or they went through this, this judgment thing. So the ark is actually the thing that saved them, and the ark itself is a picture of Christ, a type of Christ. And it has a whole other study, but it's really neat. So the type is the flood, the water destroying the earth, and then then, uh, you know, receding and then renewing the earth in that same way. The anti-type or the New Testament reality is baptism. Now, some say we're saved by baptism, but if you read this carefully, baptism is just a picture of like what they went through. They were soaked with water and then they came out the other end into a new life. And so that's a picture of what baptism represents. And this is what it actually says. It says we're saved by what? Baptism. And then, in case you thought this meant getting in the water and getting out of the water, it says not the removal of the filth of the flesh. What's that? A bath. It's not going in the water. It's what? The answer of a good conscience toward God. 
where my heart goes, Lord, I trust in Christ and I'm cleansed of my actual guilt and now I'm forgiven. So what is it that saves? Yeah, it's, it's the thing that baptism represents that saves. So baptism that saves you, and then in case you took this wrong, not the removal of the filth of the flesh, not the dunking. That's not what saves you. No, it's what it represents, the answer of your heart to the Lord. Lord, I abandon this life. I put my faith and trust in Christ, who died and rose for me again. So I'm saved what? Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, as it says there at the end of verse 21. Um, there's also examples of people being saved before they were baptized in the Bible. Uh, for instance, Acts chapter 10, Cornelius and his group, a group of Gentiles, they weren't baptized or circumcised or any of that stuff. <laughs> they're just, they're Gentiles and, and they hear about Christ and they receive faith, uh, by faith they receive Christ. Well, Peter goes to meet them and while he's there talking to them, he sees them filled with the Holy Spirit, bam, full of the Holy Spirit. And then he says, um, shouldn't we baptize these guys? They're obviously saved. So, like, the baptism is like an afterthought in this case. It wasn't like, do this so you could be saved. It was like, do this because you're saved. <laughs> you know, Christians should get baptized. If you're saved, you should get baptized. But this isn't what saves you. It's what it represents. And so even this verse that's so often used um, is misused. It's quoted out of context. It's not the removal of the filth of the flesh. So I'm not saying that baptism is unimportant. Um, God commands us. I'm saying it's not, here's the fancy word, it's not salvific. It doesn't bring salvation. It doesn't save us. So baptism is not salvific. It's, it's really important. It's really important. Um, so what is meant? The good conscience, the right response to God, repentance and faith. And we're saved, what? Through the resurrection. Just like the ark took the judgment or took the flood on itself, the ark experienced the flood more than the people. And so Jesus, he died on the cross. He suffered our actual judgment, the flood of our sin, the, the, the punishment for our guilt, so that we get saved when we are what? In Christ. And all we got to do is get in him and wait. That's it. Just abide in me. Could you imagine like they're getting tired of being on the ark for so long? And they're like, you need to abide in the ark. <laughs> Trust me, that's <laughs> not better out there. And so we just abide in Christ and we just wait on him. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this word tonight. We thank you for your truth. Um, boy, there's some complicated stuff that comes up here. I uh, hope that we can have the patience to not just jump on one bandwagon and, and preach that, but rather to carefully look at the scriptures and thoughtfully see it and evenly handle it, Lord. We pray that we would rightly divide the word of truth. That's our goal. And may you give us courage so that when we face this world and when we face those who disagree with us, who are angry at us or bitter towards us because we're following Jesus, not that we're righteous and perfect, but because we end up representing Christ, we pray that we would have a good conscience and that that would be enough, that that would be enough and the moral fortitude of that would be enough to keep us a light in this, in this dark place, to love others in the name of Christ, to preach Christ unashamedly, but also without arrogance, without wrath, without doubting, without any of those things. In Jesus' name, amen.